Newlyweds Anne Vorschach and Leslie Fenton were enjoying themselves on a long hike in England. Dressed in thick, almost cumbersome sweaters, the two defiant and one-time movie stars were now simply explorers. They would traverse the countryside, enjoy small bites, and read enormous books near crackling fires. Anne had finally found a measure of peace. Warner Brothers, on the other hand, found themselves in the middle of an unmitigated crisis. Their movie star, Anne Vorschach, had vanished for eight entire months. Countless unanswered cables were beginning to mount. Anne, aware but unconcerned, finally reassured the studio that she would be coming home. The SS Rialto docked at the Port of Los Angeles on March 2nd, 1933. The once-celebrated couple would arrive stateside on the same day that King Kong would premiere at Radio City Music Hall. One event would outsize the other. While Anne and Leslie were trotting around the globe in a state of newfound freedom, Hollywood had moved on. Mae West became a star at the box office, Ginger Rogers was about to make her first film with Fred Astaire, and Joan Blondell had filled Anne's vacancy by becoming royalty at Warner Brothers. Even though the aforementioned studio was incensed by Anne's disappearing act, they still welcomed the one-time star home. All had been mostly forgiven. Behind the scenes, the ever-ornery Jack Warner would privately fume over Anne's perceived carelessness. This distrust, callous and unfair as it may have been, informed much of Vorschach's upcoming opportunities or lack thereof. With the worst of the Warner Brothers fiasco now behind them, Anne and Leslie reintroduced themselves into the public eye. There was only one problem. Vorschach wasn't much for parties, nightclubs, or studio-mandated appearances. The actress would often use coded language in order to expedite an exit. If someone at a large gathering told one too many stories drank one too many stingers, or botched one too many jokes, and would relay messages like an expectant catcher calling for pitches. It was time to go. This preference for solitude over salience would get her into trouble when she formed unlikely bonds with extroverted personalities. But we'll talk about that later, especially when it came to Igor Dega, who was always on the move. Instead of a life consisting of flashbulbs and wine stems, the married couple decided to settle into the low-stakes relaxation of their Van Nuys home. There, Anne would be surrounded by columns of books, rows of walnut trees, an inflorescence of flowers, and yes, a chicken pen. 
The actors even built an impressive greenhouse complete with an expansive watering system. Black orchids would pepper the property. It was during this peaceful time that Vorschach would become actively interested in bacteriology. There is nothing that reduces a single life or one screen fame to a paltry ephemeral thing as the study of these life-giving and death-dealing microorganisms, and told the Los Angeles Examiner. After months of rest and study, Vorschach finally returned to work with a little-remembered film called The Way to Love. Here, Anne plays the unflappable assistant to a circus knife thrower. During the course of the film, the dopey Marie Chevalier comes to her rescue. Or so we think. The two actors have a dearth of chemistry, so it's honestly difficult to tell. The movie itself is a carefree, lighthearted trifle until a trio of talking mannequin heads appear out of nowhere. Meant to be blithesome fun, this scene caused me great despair and discomfort. I can only imagine the nightmares this unintentionally caused upon its release in 1933. Anyway, to the detriment of the film, Anne's performance taxis the runway and never quite takes off. She can barely muster the enthusiasm to deliver deflated lines such as, I want to host a puppet show, or that's a great looking hat. It's very likely that she accepted this role simply to get back into the swing of acting. What could have been the reasons for an atypically flat showing? Anne could have been unmoved by the script, rusty from her time away from movies, or altogether bored by her co-stars. It was probably all three. The star next appeared in William A. Wellman's College Coach, a film about the haywire antics and unsavory dealings in collegiate football. Vorschach is, forgive me, mostly sidelined for the duration of this film. She plays a doting wife whose sole role is to smile or disapprovingly shake her head based on the situation. There's not much agency to be found. The carousel of small parts afforded to Anne Vorschach were becoming increasingly apparent. The actress's prolonged absence from Hollywood had transformed the one-time star into a bit player in largely unimpressive projects. With barely their appearances in unremarkable films such as Side Streets, Friends of Mr. Sweeney, and the tonally bizarre Midnight Alibi, Anne's career was hurtling toward uncertainty. Mervyn Leroy's Heat Lightning was an outlier to an otherwise prosaic slate of forgettable films. The movie stars Aileen McMahon and Anne Vorschach as two sisters operating a gas station in the desolate Victorville desert. Anne's character, Myra, longs for social engagement, affection, and a way out of the windswept business. After all, there must be more to life than sun-blanched car hoods and rolling Coke bottles. Meanwhile, Aileen McMahon plays Olga, Myra's perpetually unbothered sister. Someone who is soothed by the day-to-day activities of being a rural automobile technician. Of course, this interpersonal drama isn't enough. The script called for two siblings to square off against, yes, escaped murderers. Heat Lightning hardly made a splash at the time, but it is worth seeking out. Next for Anne was the ill-conceived Housewife, a terrible film where the actress plays a beleaguered mother. The highlight? Betty Davis smoking a cigarette at a restaurant table while saying that her heart is on fire. This was yet another Warner Brothers B-side. While Anne struggled to secure quality roles, 
an emerging star named Ginger Rogers was making her name known throughout Hollywood. The new Warner Brothers performer had recently been named a baby star by Western Association Picture Advertisers. This strangely named award was to celebrate actresses on the threshold of movie stardom. It was eventually discontinued. Rogers was quickly becoming the toast of the town. 42nd Street, one of the latest and most talked about projects in her young career, was nominated for Best Picture at the 6th Annual Academy Awards. Despite her success, not everyone liked the actress. Catherine Hepburn once poured a glass of water on Ginger's head from a third-story window. But that's an entirely different story. As of now, Rogers was the new It Girl at Warner. Anne's established and beloved friend Joan Crawford was also having a great time at the studio, earning a box office smash of her own called Dancing Lady. Everyone seemed to be thriving except for Anne Vorschach, who was being conspicuously left in the cold. During this time, Anne had regained popularity with the press. Her openness was likely the reason. Vorschach made herself available for interviews and gave striking access to reporters of the time. Out of all the coverage, a particularly glowing profile was about to hit newsstands. Anne Vorschach hopes this interview will turn out well. So do I. She deserves it. Her light has been hidden under a bushel long enough. It is, moreover, a pleasure to write about her. She is a festive person, remindful of a carnival or high feast day. She is as exciting as the New Orleans Mardi Gras, and as colorful as the costumes and confetti featuring that gala fete. Though Anne Vorschach looks as exotic and glamorous as paintings of Salome or Judith of Bethulia, she has a volatile Irish temperament and a satirical sense of humor that gives to her conversation a twist of flashing irony and quick cleverness. A little while ago, I sat with her in her temporary dressing room near the set of Sweet Music, in which she plays the lead opposite Rudy Valley. I am still under her spell, and although I left her in the firm belief that she would sketch herself easily on paper, I find she is somewhat more complicated than I had thought. Girls who look exotic and languorous and do not belie their looks are more readily understood. Adjectives and comparisons lend themselves smoothly to these fascinating sirens, but you can't leave it at that with the Anne Vorschachs. There is a crispness, freshness, eagerness about her, as far removed from the subtle enchantments of the charmer as dawn from midnight. As a matter of fact, she is far more beautiful than any woman has the right to be. Her hairdresser hovered over her, arranging her reddish-brown hair in becoming waves and curls. Her maid brushed off her velvet suit and hat, placed gloves and purse before her, while she seemed quite oblivious to it all, gazing at me searchingly through the mirror, into which she looked automatically as she painted on a new lipstick, Cupid's Bow. I had seen her in Scarface with Paul Muni, three times in New York, which beats all records so far as I'm concerned. It was an actor-proof part, she said, her wide gray-green eyes looking absolutely huge in the mirror. Of course I liked it. Who wouldn't? It was drama, melodrama, and tragedy and it brought both George Raft and myself to the attention of producers and audiences all over the country. Paul Muni was already established, but Raft and myself were fairly new. It should have been the beginning of a career of starring parts for me, but it wasn't. I have played many good roles since, 
but I didn't leap into the top brackets as Raft did, or as almost anybody would have done under similar circumstances. That is why I believe we are following a pattern. I wasn't ready for stardom, and I didn't get it. When I'm ready, I will be given the chance. Anne Vorschach's voice suits her exactly. It is neither extremely high or low. It is a medium voice, which might belong to a singer, and does. In this picture, I sing and dance, and the numbers are gorgeous. This picture is right up my alley, but I don't want to be typed. I want to do all sorts of things, especially a costume drama. When I was a child, I used to do Hamlet before the mirror every night before I went to sleep. I loved him and read him over and over. I can quote whole passages from him, and sometimes do, to my husband's annoyance. I would rather do Marie Antoinette than anything in the world. I understand another studio is going to do it, so that will let me out. But just the same, I shall do it sometime, if I have to wait 15 years. Of course, Anne would never have the opportunity to star in a motion picture about Marie Antoinette. MGM's own Norma Shearer would play the role three years later to little acclaim. Costing over $2 million, it would become a highly produced, highly volatile mess. Joan Crawford, who hated Norma with a fiery passion, was gleefully cheering at this ruinous disaster. There is no evidence that Anne felt similarly to her friend, but there is room to imagine. Meanwhile, Irene Cavanaugh of the Illustrated News wrote about Anne's desire to work behind the scenes. Anne has almost made up her mind that she would rather be a motion picture cameraman than an actress, Cavanaugh observed. Anne hasn't any idea how she comes by the scientific and mechanical streak in her makeup. She only knows that, from childhood, she has experienced a great thrill from being around machinery and watching mechanical devices perform. <laughs> it's odd, isn't it? Laughed Anne one day. To find a scientific streak like that in an actress? The more so as neither my father nor mother show any tendencies of the sort? They're artists and actors, both of them. It must come from some earlier ancestor. Reporters also noted Anne's dogged determination when it came to passionately defending animal rights. If anyone placed a defenseless creature in harm's way, there would be a firmly written report filed with the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children and Animals. Anne expanded on her position. I don't care how many people get killed in a picture, she said. They know what they're up against and take the jobs voluntarily. Animals don't. What right has anyone to injure an animal just for a lousy movie? Anne was about to close the chapter on a busy 1934, but first, she would co-star in the flimsy and flammable Murder in the Clouds, a film comprised of spies, secret formulas, aviation photography, and deceit. In this fun but frivolous caper, Anne cancels plans so that she can eat a donut. But this wasn't the only project she worked on in the waning days of winter. Anne, noticing that there was no professional baseball team in Los Angeles, decided to field one of her own. Because Vorschach was no stranger to extracurricular interests, activities, and exploration, the famed actress decided to roster a semi-professional squad of athletes called the Anne Vorschach Stars. Former USC quarterback Cotton Warburton would anchor second base while manager George Duncan would pace in the dugout. Anne designed and provided the uniforms and even attempted to build the baseball team a new field. The San Bernardino Daily Sun wrote about one of the team's games in the early part of 1935. 
Ann Vorshak's semi-pro baseball team will be in San Bernardino today to celebrate the 4th of July in a regular baseball fashion. Manager George Duncan claims that Ann Vorshak, a noted screen actress and sponsor of the high-class baseball club, will probably accompany the club. But Manager George is not at all certain, only hopeful. The paper promised big things from the team. The Hollywood club has plenty of real baseball material, many former baseball stars, promising future greats, and college luminaries of one or more sports to round out the classy Ann Vorshak 9. Between baseball, movies, and machinery, this year was going to be an interesting one for Ann Vorshak. Only three months earlier, the actress went to war with a coyote who attacked more than a dozen of her prized chickens. According to page nine of the Medford Mail Tribune and meant business. Wielding a club with directness of purpose and deadly effect, Anne Vorshak, motion picture actress, yesterday beat a coyote to death in a pen. This wasn't the only conflict the actress would see and would carry a similar bludgeon into conversations with Warner Brothers in a matter of months. Things were about to get messy. Answer to the previous puzzle was written and created by Rob Patrick. It was produced by Lexi McCoy with original music by Noah East and art designed by Courtney Lasour. You have heard the voices of Avery Truffleman, Molly Lambert, Megan Hattie, Julia Shapiro, Brian Formo, Allison Roche, Bram Draper, Noah East, and Allie Rosenberg. <laughs>